Pick Up Lines 101. That's a segment for our show. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. Um, I start with hello. Hello and welcome to We're Totally Not Okay. But that's okay. A podcast about the intersection between mass media culture and mental health. I'm Kaylee Legrand. And I'm Justin Van Lisa. And we make all of our guests introduce themselves. This one's from across the pond. Carly, tell us who you are. Uh, I'm Carly. Um, Not sure where you want me to go with this about, about myself, but... I don't, I don't really know. <laughs> no, that was perfect. That's exactly. I mean, I think that's the state of the world as well. We're actually. This is the first episode that we're recording in the middle of the world's lockdown. Um, <clears throat> we don't need to explain what that is because people know what the coronavirus is already. But what's cool is that Carly, you're over in the UK, right? Yes. And we're able to connect over this weird, like my screen's strange, but I can still see people. We can still talk to each other. And you have some beautiful setup gear over there to capture some nice audio. Love it because you're also in the entertainment industry. I'm assuming that's why you have uh, yeah. this gear. Well, also my partner works in music, so he knows what the good stuff is. Um, but my pipe dream is to be the voice of a Disney princess. So um, days I'm not working other jobs. I am in my office recording myself doing voiceovers from different pay to play sites or doing auditions, self tapes, that kind of stuff. Very cool. Well, it's nice that you have good setup gear for that. Um, was that something that you were already into your, your voice artist? Did you start as a voice artist or do you perform in theater television? Is COVID the reason why you got into more voice work? <laughs> Uh, no, I was a, well, as a child, I was a theater kid through and through. Um, and then as I got older, I had such a winding, honestly, I have such a winding path. Um, but basically what brought me to voiceover was I was working PR in an office in London and it just happened that there was a company in the same building that did demos for video games and they, in a panic came into our office once and just asked if anyone was free to record a demo for them. And I hated working in PR and I raised both arms and was like, me, 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 me. Um, and then after that day I had come home and said to my partner, I just, I just, today was my favorite day I've had in as long as I can remember. And he said, well, why don't you do that? And I said, oh, I, yeah, I don't, what? Yeah, I will, I think. And then he helped me get everything going specifically for voiceover. How did that change from, because I know when we met each other, Carly and I went to college together, but um, you were talking about being an actress and actually doing a bunch of auditions for stuff. And now you've kind of swapped over into the voiceover. So what is the difference about it that you enjoy more? Like what, what drew you to that kind of art? I wouldn't say that I'm not acting anymore. I'm absolutely still acting and still love theater and love um, film and TV. Like I I really do love all the different mediums. Um, But voiceover for some reason, maybe it's this connection to nostalgia. I don't know how you guys feel about your childhoods, but I just have these really deep filled deep joy-filled memories of watching Disney films with my family and 
and hearing these beautiful voices and and wanting to be a part of that um and so I think as I got older I'd always look for that feeling in performing um and and I had never really considered voiceover as a discipline or as a specific career because I wanted to be on Broadway <laughs> um, and then uh, yeah I mean that's the truth it's like uh, my ambition was big my aspirations were way beyond my knowledge of the industry and reality um and yeah eventually um I started to really understand how the industry worked a little bit more um and the thought of doing voiceover and being the voice of a Disney princess just became all consuming. Um, and then a couple of years ago, to be fair, I'm probably not allowed to say that. So I'll probably have to cut this out of the podcast, but, um, I was seen by, um, the Disney production company for one of their films. Maybe it's fine to say, I don't know. Well, I signed an NDA, so I can't say what it is, but I was seen by Disney for one of their um, films. I don't think it's out yet. And I was shortlisted for The Princess. So it was really close to me at one point. Um, But yeah, that was a couple years ago. So, you know, you keep your dreams alive. Yeah, that's amazing. And that is something that, like, as soon as you said the word nostalgia, my mind immediately went to, as a kid, being obsessed with all the different creatures in Disney films. Like, I was actually just talking with a friend about Cinderella, um, a project that I might work on is about Cinderella and being considered for that role. I'm like, yeah, but I always wanted to be Gus Gus. Like, I wanted to be the weird little creatures. (laughs) And one of the reasons why I wanted to get into voice work, um, starting from a young age, was because of the creatures in Rescuers Down Under. And there's this one one moment that probably has, like it doesn't even push narrative. It doesn't have anything really to do with the movie, but I would replay the moment where all of those animals are in their own kingdom on a chandelier in the restaurant and they have their own little restaurant going on and they make their foods from scraps falling off of waiters' uh, trays and whatnot and there's a um I think he's a an ant that picks up a pea that fell off a waiter's tray and the moment of where like he decides the menu picks up he's like mm, syrup. and I'm like that that's all I want to do I want to be that ant that's my role in like every every production from here on out but that, that's the stuff that you remember as a kid where it's like oh this magical world that you can be a part of and and these animations are making noises. They that stuck with me too. So it's cool that that's something that resonated with you. I think too, there's um, so much creativity in not being in front of a camera. Like when you are just you in a booth and a microphone, and you have a character that you have completely developed in your own head, all the intricacies of who that person is. You're not held back by, oh, what angle am I being shot from, or what's my mark, or mm-hmm. um, why uh, d- does this look bad, or oh, I'm worried about that pimple on my face. Like you just really get to dive straight into who you're playing. Obviously, there's technique involved, but ultimately, you get to really just enjoy and indulge in manifesting a character. Yeah, it's a completely different creation process. I always think about how 
Morgan Freeman must just sit up in his bed and his assistant delivers scripts and he never gets out of his pajamas and he just reads the voiceover narrative for like the voice of God for every film <laughs> and like how that is kind of the ideal job to live in your pajamas and just be a voice. That's really cool. I was going to say we're pretty much living the dream now because if any voice jobs come through, we have nowhere to go. Yeah. I mean, that's that's kind of the silver lining of being in that line of production, that kind of the industry, that part of it. Um, is that is that something that you dig for on your own? Do you have an agent over there that helps you set up that kind of work? Yeah, I have an agent. Um, she's amazing, but she also has other clients and she, like all agents, do their best by their clients because obviously it's a mutual uh, beneficial relationship. So if I book a job, she makes a percentage of that income. Um, and if I'm not booking, she's not earning um, on my behalf. But um, but that doesn't mean that she is the only way I am getting work. I don't know why I'm finding this so hard to articulate. She, yes, I have an agent. Of course I have an agent. It's the best way to get the jobs that are harder to come by on your own. She also is like any industry in some capacity, um, a gatekeeper. So if you are able to get someone to vouch for you, then other companies are more likely to want to work with you because you aren't just someone claiming to be a voice actor. Do you know what I mean? That said, I, I am still a part of pay to play sites. Um, I don't know if your uh, listeners know what that is, but essentially you subscribe to companies Well, you subscribe to websites, then um, clients also subscribe to the websites and post jobs that you are able to do custom demos and auditions for and then procure hopefully work out of those demos and then clients. Right. And so when you made the hop over, sorry, how many years ago, how long ago did you move uh, across the pond? Uh, well, I did my master's degree here in 2010, and then I moved back here again in 2016. Okay, so when you so, were over here in Canada, did you have an agent here? And if so, what was the process like making those transitions and not only finding an agent over there and being able to you know, rep yourself until you could find somebody who wanted to take you on, but also what did the visa process look like? Was it, was it a challenge? Ooh, this is, uh, I don't know how much time you guys have. Um, <laughs> we'll edit it down. <laughs> um, okay, cool. Um, I, I moved to the UK twice. Um, the first time I moved to the UK was after, directly after I finished drama school in Toronto. Um, so at the end of this diploma program in Toronto, you do a show and you invite agents and casting people to come see you should they feel like they might be appropriate in representing you or in casting you. Um, so I did that in Toronto and I had some interest from some impressive agents. Actually, I was really surprised that anyone wanted to come <laughs> and see it. Um, but, uh, but I actually ended up auditioning for this master's program and got in and wanted to go to study in Scotland because I wanted a master's degree. Um, I don't know why, but I did. So, um, at the end of my master's showcase, I, so this is 2010, I had no interest from agents or casting directors and I basically was living in London 
with no I was 20 and I just had no clue like just I was just I just had no I no plans didn't even know who to submit to didn't know where to access that information I was completely lost and really disheartened with the industry itself after my master's when I moved back to Canada um I went to Ryerson which is where I met Justin um and then moved back to the UK uh, because I had fallen in love with someone and he lived here. And it was the decision we made together was this would be the best place for us um, to try and establish our relationship. Um, And it was only two years after I moved here that I actually started to reintroduce myself to the industry. Um, So trying to do that again after years out of the industry was a challenge obviously um visa wise the first time I moved here I was on a postgraduate tier four visa um and I got that through the university and then this time um when I moved back I was under 30 and there's a visa called the youth mobility scheme and it's essentially you just pay it's two years um and you get to work unlimited and travel around as much as you like uh, for those two years. And then my partner and I were eligible for an unmarried spousal visa. Um, so that is the visa I'm on now. Um, but then there's still hoops to jump through. So one of my good friends is married and she still has to be applying for visas. Um, it's a really expensive process. It's not simple, um, but there's all sorts of different routes you can go if you want to live here and work as an artist. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. It, my sister also lives in Oxford and she she's had a similar I mean, she's hopped around a lot throughout Europe over the past 10 ish years or so. And I was chatting about what that process was like for her. And she said, you know, it's there are so many hoops and it was such a challenge. But to get through it and to actually be on the other side and to to have that warranted to you is such an incredible feeling. Um, it can seem daunting when you're at the bottom of that mountain and it does sound like it's a continual process that you never really feel or at least like where my sister is now and where you're at now you know like you said there are still hoops to go through there's there's never really that that safe footing that feels like complete security which (laughs) i mean i think is the theme of the world right now so with everything being so up in the air (laughs) except for flights i think finding your own Mm -hmm. way in your industry carving your own path is is a really cool way to go about it and it sounds like that's sort of always been in your nature would you say that you're you've always been a self-starter like that do you just follow those those passions and have that urge that need to create follow that yeah (laughs) I I would say that in trying to think about my upbringing in my past yeah I was always somebody that if I liked something enough, I would try to to make it a part of my life. So I moved to Vancouver Island when I was 16 and I started my own little dance school. I don't know, like I had five friends that started to come and I taught them hip hop and then a couple of their friends started to come and we, we made up dances and they paid me to make oh, up dances that. and teach them. It was, it's not like I was like earning a huge income. I was like earning enough to pay for the space and to make sure that the insurance for the space was covered um, because the owner told me that I had to make sure the insurance was covered for renting the space. I didn't know what that even meant. I just was (laughs) like, okay, how much money do you need from me? And then I divided that by the number of people in the class. And so we just, yeah, 
You've always been an entrepreneurial girl. Yeah, but I don't think I ever thought of it in that way. I just thought, oh, I, I really like doing this. And so how do I how do I make it happen for myself? That's really cool. It sounds like um, and I, I think that we've mentioned this on the podcast earlier about Justin. You both seem to have this disposition that the fear doesn't take over. That's not really part of the initial process. It's just a you recognize a want or a desire and it sounds like the next step for you guys is cool. How does it, how do we make it happen? Like those pylons that you have to get over the hurdles that you have to jump are not, they don't induce fear. It sounds like it's sort of an exciting challenge. You just figure out how to do it. Is that, am I right about that? Or does fear somehow factor into it still for you? I mean, I see Justin the same way. I've never met anyone in the world like Justin. I, I remember he came to visit me in London once and I was moaning to him. I was working in PR and I was moaning about my career struggles. And he was like, let's do a, let's do a blog about it. I was like, well, no one wants to read about my career struggles. Why would I do that? Uh, and he was like, well, maybe, maybe, maybe people will want it. I'm sure other people will feel that way. You should try. And I, and he helped he helped me make a blog post, and I felt really proud of it. Oh, that's so I, cool! I, I, he, that's just him. He's just, I mean, in my personal opinion, quite an exceptional human being. Um, but I definitely do have fear. I think my fears are less. It, involved when it's something that I'm not expecting other people to be a part of if it's uh, how am I uh, I don't I, I wish on a podcast I was able to express myself more clearly um <laughs> I, I think like you know at a when I'm 15 16 and I want to start a little dance school and I've got some friends that want to learn how to dance. That that's not really a challenge. That's just a, a case of what time and what place. You know what I mean? As a teenager, I was really lucky. I didn't have to worry about part-time jobs and stuff. So I just thought, well, other friends are working, so why don't I try and do this too? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think. But the fear never actually motivates you. That's not. That's not the thing that's driving you. The thing that's driving you is more just kind of the time and place is right joy. and lightning strikes. It's more joy that drives me than fear. Oh, I um, love that. But, but I think I spent, I spent a lot of my life up until the end of my master's degree seeking out validation from outside myself. So I was driven by wanting others to like what I was doing and like me. Oh, so wow. when, when I graduated from my master's and I didn't have an agent that was interested and I didn't have any casting directors speak to me after and I didn't know what I was doing I felt so lost and so alone and like a failure and I dragged my bum back to Canada like devastated so Mm -hmm. you know it's really it's really I wouldn't say that I'm fearless in my endeavors it was only up until going to Ryerson and actually learning that I was intelligent and that I had something to offer other than a friendly face and singing songs and doing dances. You know what I mean? When I really started to trust my own intellect um, and I saw that hard work paid off, um, that I really started to feel less interested in 
other people's validation. So how does that actually change your mentality when you walk into, for say, an audition? Like if beforehand you were auditioning and you were really looking for that validation, how much of what you saw yourself as was based on the reactions in those rooms? Can you ask me that one more time? <laughs> so basically just, yeah, all good. Basically just um, like you're talking about now not seeking validation in the same way that you used to. Right. So, so what was the experience of Carly going into an, an audition or, or sending in a, a demo reel for voice work before coming to that realization and after? And like, how has that changed? Okay. Um, before I would panic about what I was doing, whether I was saying everything exactly right, how I presented myself, was I likable enough, was I thin enough, what if I, what if I walked in the room wrong, like a whole other level of self-doubt came into my work and my, mm -hmm. and my trust and my commitment to the thing that I love, which is acting and singing. Um, so I, it would completely change my, my approach to the craft. Um, and I know that sounds really, I don't know, what's the word for it? Um, I wanna say wanky. It's, it sounds like so self-indulgent, doesn't it? Like the craft was affected by myself, and my insecurity. <laughs> like, but but the truth the truth is is that I was so focused on everything outside of what it was that I was trying to convey that I would leave mm. the room and and every time be worried and be upset and wait with bated breath for anyone to say anything or do anything for me to have any idea whether or not I was on the right track. Whereas now, like I could be wrong for something, but if I have worked really hard and I've committed to my choices and I like myself, then I can leave that room or send in a tape and be like, well, I had nothing else to go on and I feel really proud of what I did and then I can walk away from it and be fine. Would you say that yeah. you, um it sounds like there's two ends of the stick, depending on whether you're looking at yourself through the eyes of these casting directors or from any external point of validation, let's call it, or if you're looking at yourself from, from the inside and that, that place from which you create, it sounds like there's two ends of the stick. There's either that fear or that joy. And when you approach it from joy, when you see yourself through others' eyes as something that is joyful and exciting, um, or if you just are sitting in the midst of the creation where it's coming from within and you still, you're not coming from a place of fear, you're just feeling the elation of it, um, would you say that there is a difference really, like how do you balance the feedback that you have to acknowledge when maybe it is easier to stay inside yourself and just stay with what you love that I just love acting. I love this feeling I'm going to create from within. But, you know, as an improviser, I also recognize in live productions, you have to read the room same way that you would be reading, let's say, at a room of an audition. So you have to recognize that external validation how do you balance that and keep yourself sane when you know that that's the industry you're in? You have to be aware of how other people are perceiving you. Well, I think unless you're going into a room and insulting everyone in it, there's no reason for somebody to not like you. Um, and if we're talking about feedback, then yeah, you have to be open to constructive criticism. I would hope that 
no one's walking into a room and someone's saying to you that's shit that I hated that change it that's not helpful (laughs) for anybody so if Mm -hmm. you're walking into a room and somebody says that to you then all you can do is your absolute best and walk away and be like well I don't think I'd want to work in an environment that's so negative and degrading and non-constructive. Like who can work in an environment like that? So if you walk into a room and everybody has the same goal, which is to make whatever project you're working on the best it could possibly be, then everyone's interest and everyone's focus is the same thing. So reading a room, yeah, important. You know, if someone's having a really off day and you're coming in and I don't know, driving them crazy, yeah, that's probably not great. So having consideration for others, is obviously always going to be important, but I I think coming from a place of self-confidence and knowing that you are invited somewhere as a performer only when other people believe in you, that should already put you in a position of power. You've, You've been invited. There's thousands and thousands and thousands of people that want to do this. So if you're fortunate enough to get into a room, then you should really trust what you bring to it. And when you get feedback, it's part of our job to be able to take feedback and turn it into action. What about your own personal processes? Like when you're at home, when you're alone, when you have those times that are not so easy to find the positive light in everything, do you have routines? Do you meditate? Do you sit with tarot cards? What do you do for yourself when, (laughs) you know, that you don't really share with the world? It's not art for other people. It's just your own process. The la- this last year I've been doing a lot of working on myself, honestly, like this year specifically, um, since March last year, my partner and I were doing a home renovation, which was the most emotionally outrageous experience I've ever had in my life. It really, really forced me to look at, yeah, it really forced me to look at myself. Um, and oh no. yeah, honestly, <laughs> it was awful, but not, not, not anybody else, just me. It, it, I was awful. I w- was really not handling mm. it well. For, you were I awful was, because you recognized your awful side because of home renovations. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I was so emotionally spread out that I, I couldn't complete a one conversation with anyone without getting agitated and frustrated you know people that love me and that were taking Mm. their time to check in on me I didn't want to speak to them I was just grumpy all the time and that was no one else's fault but my own like things can be going wrong Mm -hmm. in the world but if you've got a roof over your head you've got food to eat you've got people that love you and think about you enough to check in on you like what yeah that was a problem for me obviously so in recognizing that like was it coming uh, from stress of was that that state of agitation oh yeah 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 fully stress induced and also because uh i we i was living in um a, a different apartment with my big crazy dog and then trying to manage this renovation and also continue my own career and craft um which obviously takes a lot of grafting. I just, I just started to lose myself. Um, I mean, what an extraordinary experience to have had. <laughs> and I'm very glad it's over, but I did spend the last year, basically. Um, this last year I started meditating. Definitely that is a huge, huge need for me now. I, I didn't know it, I was gonna need to do it, but I meditate now every single day. And if I don't, I can, I can feel a difference in my 
I don't know, energy is it sounds really hippy dippy and spiritual. I feel like I feel like I don't see the world the same way if I haven't meditated, basically. So mm. I meditate. Um, I read a lot. What's your meditation process look like? Do you use a guided app mm. or do you just sit on your own in silence? Was it was it difficult to get into for you or did you find that it was immediately uh, relaxing? My brother actually ha, um, has been reading a lot about um, ma- managing anxiety. And so he, when I was saying to him that I have no idea what's happened to me and who have I become, he said, oh, why don't you try these books? And he sent me um, the first book that really got me on this road to a healthier mental state is called... Um, it's by Michael Singer. It's called The Surrender Experiment. Um, and it's basically just a story of somebody that says yes. He starts saying yes to things and just hopes that the universe is guiding him in a direction that is only going to be for the best of his future and everyone around him. Um, and it turned out for him, what an extraordinary life he's had. Um, but yeah, it, it became very positive for him. So from that book which reads more as a story than a self-help book, which I appreciated. I started to read. Yeah, that was the exact same book that got me into it. Was it? Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) honestly, because I I was reading all the, I I tried to read um, Eckhart Tolle and I just found it so hard. I found it so hard to read and understand. And I I felt like if this is what it's going to be like, then I'm going to need to find something else to do. Um, (laughs) It's really difficult to process, really valuable information um, written by someone that's accepted as a world leader in mental health and spirituality and all sorts of philosophical ideals. But for me, I I tried to read it and I felt like I was reading another language. It was so hard. So I was never that into yoga, which is weird because I danced a lot. But uh, the warrior pose, for for whatever reason, as soon as I ever got to the warrior pose, I just never wanted to do it. I'd be done. That would be it. Um, (laughs) So weird, right? I don't know what it triggered in me, but I just, as soon as anyone said warrior pose, I just wanted to walk out of the room. Um, So that didn't work. It's like home renos. (laughs) Like, yeah, I don't know. I must have something deep within me that just does not like specific things, renos and warrior pose. Um, So after I read the surrender experiment I started to read a book by uh, Dr. Joe Dispenza called You Are the Placebo Um, and he is a neuroscientist I think Um, and he Mm -hmm. he had a serious accident himself and then oh do you know you know this okay so he had a serious accident and then worked on (laughs) I feel like we've read all the same stuff (laughs) oh yeah so good so I've read I've read all of Dr. Joe Dispenza's books and listened to them in audiobook because I always think I miss things if I start skimming and don't realize I'm skimming or if I'm not listening properly so I got, and then I use, so I use, that was a really long way of saying I use his guided meditations. Um, depending <laughs> on my mood, I'll use um, the heart center one or the um, cultivating your potential one. I mean, there's loads, there's loads of different guided meditations he does, but I find that the most, excuse me, beneficial. And so that's what I use. 
Do you ever feel like, because you talk about dancing a lot and not being into yoga despite being a dancer, do you ever feel that dancing is actually a form of meditation for you? Like, do you go to that same space? No. I love dancing, but no, not for me. No. No. I I get way too perfectionist, uh, selfed. What's the mm. word? What am I trying? I get way too obsessed with doing things right, um, and so when I'm focusing yeah. really hard on wanting everything to be perfect, I am not able to zen myself. But Justin, you're a dancer. Do you find it meditative? I do. I actually really do, and I, I go to that same space where at some point, if I've it's it's not when I'm still picking up the moves, but at some point, once you've been doing them long enough, and I'm sure you've experienced this, when you enter that almost autopilot, where your mind is completely blank and your body is just kind of doing the steps the way that you've been doing them for weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, I find that is almost like a meditation. Yeah. I find that more in singing than I do in dance. That's interesting. I find, I think that because you guys have such a technical background, because you guys have the, um, the academia of what the language of dance is that you studied it, you have the theory there's, there's so much more of that library in your brain probably that you can pull from and, and exist in when you're dancing that sometimes I find, you know, the same thing with writing or even with yoga because I'm a yoga instructor. There's there are so many books on the shelves that I could analyze what I'm doing from. And I find that I have a similar process with writing that sometimes I can get into a flow if I'm especially just doing stream of conscious writing as opposed to screenwriting and being very aware of the tonality and the pace and the structure and uh, formatting, you know, all those different technicalities that I'm maybe going to that external validation of how somebody might judge my blueprint for a film, (laughs) my screenplay, as opposed to just being like, no, whatever's inside of me just needs to come out. So I'm going to do stream of conscious. Maybe that's something that's similar that you allow yourself to create or dance from a place that you, where you let go of the externalities or the technicalities of it. Um, and dance can be such a freeing place, a freeing experience. But when you when you come from a world of like competition and continually being judged, perhaps those are the synapses firing in your brain where you start to move and yeah, it's like I'm I being feel. judged. <laughs> I, I find singing a lot more cathartic than I find <laughs> dancing. I still really like dancing. I really engage with um, the instruction and the movement. Um, I've, it's really fun and a good workout, but that's kind of it for me. That's kind of as far as it goes. And so for, with singing, you feel freer? You don't feel like you go into that headspace well, of being judged? I think judged? if I have to sing for somebody I, or for a reason whereby people are judging me, then yeah, I would feel judged or I'd worry about being judged, but I, I don't tend to, I, at the moment I audition more for film and TV than I do for singing. So if I'm singing, I'm singing for myself and not anybody else. When it comes from a place of creation or story in, in general, um, is it about the how or is it just about the why? Like, can you just come back to your why and tell the story or are, are those little details really the things that we should be analyzing? Are those what make the differences? Does that make sense as a question? Is it the why or the how? 
I don't know if they're mutually exclusive in my head. I think the words for me can come very freely. Like, like you were saying for yourself, you know, when you're writing something, sometimes stream of consciousness flows and, and then sometimes it doesn't. I think for me, words come a lot faster. Obviously you can tell I can rarely make anything clear and concise. Um, but for some reason, words when I'm writing can flow a lot faster, but to have those words be supported by an emotionally, a music, a musically driven emotional story. I, I don't know if that's, doesn't come as easy. No, I do know it does not come as easy to me. If I, I can sit in front of the piano and play loads of different keys and just play one note for five minutes to see if it feels right. And I just, then I move on to a different activity. I just don't, doesn't, doesn't speak to me. It does sound like a lot of um, your creation process is it, it can happen solo. You don't need a lot of, you know, you don't need any external validation when it comes to writing your songs or sitting alone or meditating. Have you found that your regular, your routine, um, how you keep your art going and building your craft, has that been affected at all with the state of the world? Like, it, it sounds like you're very comfortable at home on your own, but have you has it affected your your craft whatever lifestyle is like over there i'm not even entirely sure you know if you're slam clicking and staying at home and like not even going out to buy groceries having things delivered what's that been like for uh, you creatively you're right not much has changed my day to day is self-motivated for the most part unless i'm lucky enough to be working um and truth tr the truth is i honestly am the happiest doing ensemble pr projects I love working with other people. I love creating with other people. I love singing with other people. I love dancing with other people. Uh, there's less satisfaction doing it alone for me, but I will take doing it alone over not doing it at all. And if I'm lucky enough to work on a project that involves other people, then yay. Um, but obviously as adults, people, people's, paths change and some of my most talented friends are working full-time in other career avenues and the time to sit around and be creative together just isn't there like it used to be when we were a lot younger and what exactly are the rules and regulations i'm just wondering how much they differ from our canadian government what what sorts of impositions have they posed on you? Well, I'm in London where the virus is uh, the most visible. Um, so, and I think we were at least a week behind Toronto because my sister was saying that she was self-isolating a week, at least a week before I was meant to. Um, but at the moment, the rules are not enforced to the degree like you don't need to be scared to go out, but but the country is asking you to only go to the grocery store if you need necessities and to go on one walk a day or get one form of exercise a day out of your house if you have to. Um, obviously, London is, a, a, there's a lot of people that live here in close proximity to each other. Um, so the government doesn't expect you and all of those other people to stay in your home or in your room or in your bed sit by yourself trying to do exercise and not leave. So the mm. public parks for the most part are still open. They're just expecting people to be respectful of 
the country and the country's ability to look after all of its residents. Um, so you're meant to go out for one form of exercise a day and you can go to the grocery store, but only for necessities. That's super interesting. I, I've found that, you know, being in a big city and living in close proximity to everybody, you know, I'm thankfully a little bit out of downtown. I live in a little bit more of a, I think a spacious area community, but I still live that busy lifestyle in that I didn't really know my neighbors all that well, um, especially because I I do bounce around, I move around a lot, even within the city, but I found that, you know, my neighbors stopped by and, you know, kept, kept meters from the door when, when we opened it and, um, exchanged words, but we started connecting on levels where it's like, Hey, I'm going to the grocery store on this day. Can I pick stuff for you up? Because you go to the grocery store and people are lined up in a spaced way because they're only allowing certain amount of people in the grocery store at a time. And it's just a very different process to live your life, obviously. But those connections that I never really had with my neighbors were, you know, I think that maybe that was a way that we used to live more as a community and more and more we're seeing in these, these uh, tightly packed, these condensed cities, even though we're in close proximity, it's almost as if we are further disconnected because of that. Have you found that you've found more connections with people because of the distance? Like people that you never would have communicated with, not just friends and family? I'm sure that is the case for other people, but not really for me. Um, uh, maybe <laughs> just, it's just... Yeah, no, I'm at home alone. Everybody stay away. <laughs> no, like, I, I think it's just in my... Like, I am friends with my neighbors. I'm friends with my neighbor's daughter. We go on walks together um, with our dogs that are friends. Our dogs are friends. Um, and on, on the other <laughs> side... Um, the family next door, I really like them. There's a lady that lives up the road. She, um, in her heyday, was a famous artist, has pictures in the Nas National Portrait Gallery. You know, I I'll go to the shop and ask if she needs groceries anyway. Um, and much to my friend's dismay, um, when I go to the grocery store or anywhere else, I tend to chat to anyone and everyone anyway so I will still keep my I'll keep you know you don't want to go into a stranger's personal space anyway like everyone's got a bubble so I still stay a couple mm -hmm. meters away but for, for me like and my disposition I, I, I tend to be quite an out I'm like a very social introvert so I'm super happy in my own company but if I'm out of my own company I, I will speak to anyone and everyone even if they don't really want to talk to me <laughs> I, you've already mentioned several books that started triggering other ideas for me, but do you have a one cool thing? Uh, I do, actually. I, I was thinking about this a lot, and then and I was asking my partner, what, what's cool? Tell me, what do I say that's cool? Um, but then actually this came up really naturally. <laughs> Everyone at the moment is watching um, The Tiger King. Don't know if you know what I'm talking about, the Tiger King TV show yes. on Netflix. Yeah. And I just have no interest, no interest. I feel sad for the tigers. <laughs> I don't know who these people are. I, I don't, oh like, God. I'm not okay. I just don't, I just don't want to talk about it. I don't want to watch it. And then I thought, do you know what? This is such a me thing where, like, I will completely remove things that are very 
popular content wise for my life. So my cool thing is selective consumption because I think if something, even social media or TV shows, films, if something is going to take away from your joy or make you feel bad or make you feel upset where you can't action out anything to do about, like I can't do anything about the Tiger King having and breeding and owning tiger. Like I can't do anything about tigers in captivity. It just bothers me. I don't even think the show is about tigers in captivity, but that just bothers me anyway. So I I don't want to watch it. So my cool thing is selective consumption. I don't engage in consuming material that makes me feel bad. Oh, that makes me feel so much better because I've my list of things that I am supposed to consume has just been growing exponentially with friends sending me messages of, you know, watch this, do this, here's a YouTube video, you should read this, this is what's going on with Corona, also this is how to distract yourself from Corona, and like, I feel inundated, and my one cool thing is the complete opposite, as well, it's, I guess, more aligned to what you're saying, being selective, but it's, it's being completely removed from it, and, um, a form of meditation practice that I've taken on recently within the past week or so. So I've been meditating for years every morning as well. And I've started playing with visualization. And I, in particular, have been envisioning violet flames. And just the idea of trying to envision, starting from like, it engulfing me and letting that grow expand to just being a filter of violet light in my entire studio um that extending into you know the entire building engulfed in these flames uh it's been interesting to see what that does for me but also trying to envision something that is a different color than what it would be if i opened my eyes and looked at an actual flame the colors that's been an interesting challenge for me. And I've been trying to figure out, because this is a practice that uh, a therapist, an online therapist that I have been seen for, seeing, like we're dating for the past <laughs> week or so. We just, I started this new program and it's really cool. And I'm wondering if she gave me this challenge because on an intellectual level, when you try to force yourself to see something that isn't, it's not in tune with reality, like envisioning a pink elephant. You know what an elephant looks like. You know what the color pink is. But now you have to use your imagination to put those things together. I'm so fascinated to try to figure out, you know, is this is this something that we're trying to do to build neurological pathways that wouldn't necessarily exist, that you cannot get in the real world? I turn it into such a I, I clearly don't meditate, right? Because I go super analytical and brainy. I'm like, let's think about it. Let's analyze it. <laughs> but it's been kind of a cool challenge for me, um, which is also obviously coupled with just being pulled away by my own thoughts, like the, the daily experience, the daily thoughts of what's what's going on. Um, so that's my, my one cool thing is visualization and trying to figure out what it is and, and what it does for me, um, both in obviously an analytical way, but in the experiential way and how it's been making me feel. I've, I've really been enjoying that. That's awesome. My one cool thing is something I started a long time ago, but every once in a while, 
I spend a lot of time on it, and then every once in a while I don't spend a lot of time on it. And so now that I'm quarantined in my parents' basement, I've been spending a lot of time <laughs> on it again. But it's a bullet journal. Um, super white girl. Absolutely love it. But it's really cool because I've been doing it for about a year now. And I have like a year of just like one-liners of what I did every day. Um, and I've, I have a horrible memory, so I couldn't tell you what I did on December 4th. But now I can. Um, so that's my one cool thing. It's like a little time capsule handwritten in my little chicken scratch handwriting. Thanks so much for carving out the time and your day to chat with us. We really appreciate it. And enjoy Thank your house you. now that the renos are over. <laughs> Yay! Yes, thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, it's it is a pleasure to be home now with walls. <laughs> it's great. Yes. It's great. Good. Enjoy that. <laughs> If you like this podcast, you can support it by subscribing to it on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. You can also leave us a review. Which sincerely helps us. Which we love. Come hang out with us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and send us your questions, recommendations, and cool things at we're totally not okay at gmail.com. Learn more about how you can lend your voice to this podcast and join us on an episode by looking at the link in our description. More information can be found at anchor.fm. Thanks for listening to We're Totally Not Okay. But that's okay. 